It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. I don't know how much the episode will devote to this, but just as a kicking off point, I received an email from, it was a press release, and I thought this was really fascinating. I'm curious if you've heard of this, Jason, and I really felt like it was worth bringing to other people's attention because I didn't know about this. So apparently there is some concerns about the inhumane use of monkeys to harvest coconuts in Thailand. Have you ever heard about this? I have. It was, I think, an offshoot of the palm oil conversation about the destruction of habitat for orangutans. And I don't remember when I first heard about this. I didn't see any concrete evidence or research, but I remember some talk about why not to buy specific varietals of coconut. I haven't dug deeper into it, so I'm very curious what they were sharing with you in this press release. Well, in full transparency, I think this is a little bit about promoting... Oh, no, it's definitely... I just scrolled to the bottom of the press release. This is definitely a promotional piece for Edward & Sons, which is a company that I really love. I think you do too, Jason. They make really wonderful plant-based products. I think they might be a family-owned business. Is that right? Or is that a misconception? They feel like a family because yeah. we've met the people behind the company a few times. And this press release went out to highlight the fact that this is happening and that Edward and Sons is not working with any coconut farms that uses monkeys for harvesting. And so that's great to know. And then it makes me wonder, like, what brands are working with farms like this? And I honestly had never heard of this or don't recall hearing about this before. And I think it just brings up a big issue of, and we've talked about this in several episodes, but really understanding where your food comes from and what the realities are and, and kind of like the weird things that happen in the food industry. So apparently there was an expose in 2015 of several coconut farmers in Thailand who capture and train monkeys to assist with their coconut harvest, which is thus subjecting the animals to cruel conditions. And so I'm kind of surprised this came out five years ago and I don't recall learning about it. And it just seems so strange. To me, it's a challenge because. I feel like do so much diligent research on what is in the food in terms of organic, non-GMO, all the things that we discussed with our friend Max Goldberg in that previous episode of going into labeling and certifications. But now we're talking about a deeper layer of ethics beyond, say, the soil conditions or whether or not pesticides or herbicides or fungicides are used. Now we're talking about the ethics of not just humanizing the work conditions, 
we talk about the importance of fair trade and we hear a lot about paying a living wage, not just to farmers. We hear this a lot right now, I think, as we're reimagining the old paradigm of toxic capitalism, which is a lot of people are calling it slave labor in the sense that you have CEOs or shareholders of companies that are millionaires or billionaires. And then the everyday workers that are creating the wealth and generating the wealth for that very small percentage of people are begging for $15 an hour, even if it's that. Some places, we're talking about outside the US, $15 an hour or an equivalent wage would be massive for them. I mean, in some places, they're still trying to fight for basic subsistence. So this does beg the question, Whitney, of how deep down the rabbit hole can we go with researching our food? You know, in the sense of, I think part of our mission as individuals, and certainly with Wellevator in this podcast, is to be as aware as we can be, make sure that we are voting with our dollars and putting our money and energetic financial resources towards things that we believe in ethically. And now it makes me question, as you said, what other coconut-based products have I been consuming and been completely ignorant to this? I mean, I think about brands like, you know, I buy So Delicious Coconut Milk or I buy coconut shreds from other companies to bake with and cook with. And now it's that other level of, okay, how can I accurately research the living conditions of the workers, what they're being paid? Is it fair trade? Is it a living wage? But now enslaving animals to do the literal dirty work. It's on one hand, it's a little bit exasperating, right? Of like, God, you know, there are so many levels to this awareness conversation. But then it also disheartens me because it's like, fucking humans. You know, like that's where my mind goes is fucking humans. God. It is interesting. And I think it's important to have these conversations and raise this awareness because I think it gets so overwhelming to a certain point when you look at all the horrific things happening in the world. And it's really easy to turn away from it and say, well, I can't handle any more information. And that's why a lot of these things continue to happen because they're either covered up or not enough people know about it or not enough people care. And it's an inconvenience. And there are times where you think, I'm going to pretend that I don't know that's happening, or maybe I won't learn about these things so that I can go on with my life in ignorant bliss. And this is part of getting uncomfortable is acknowledging what's happening. And I think the part that makes it easier for me is that once I learn information like this, if I can just simply support a company that isn't involved. And, and that isn't too hard. You can go and do some research. And clearly, since this is a press release for Edward and Sons, it's like another reason to buy their products, right? And then maybe do you go in and look it up? Like when I think about Edward and Sons coconut products, I think about their coconut milk, their canned coconut milks. And usually next to them, there's what is that major brand, the, the Thai brand that makes that the canned coconut milks. It's got like the red label. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I think it's just Thai Kitchen. Right. I mean, I'm curious. Maybe they do it. They're a huge brand. They do have organic canned coconut milk. Usually I buy coconut milk based on the price, to be honest. I've bought it from store brands. And so it's probably not something that they talk about on their website. So it does require you to send some emails and get active and maybe partner with other activists out there. Or maybe PETA has a list, which I will link to. I'll look it up and see. I don't know if it's been updated since 2015, but it'd be interesting to see if they called out any brands and maybe some have changed over time. And it reminds me also of 
just being more intentional in general. I think we've mentioned this a little bit on the show, how sometimes I can be a little lazy with my veganism. And one thing that I've been mindful of recently has been wine. And for the listener, if you didn't know this, not all wine is vegan. Some alcohol goes through a filtration process where animal products are used. I think it's generally fish products. Like sometimes they'll filter through or filter with. I'm still a little confused on this, but Jason, do you remember? Like, is it that they like filter through fish or they add fish during the filtration process or something? And it's, or it's like a byproduct of it. Isinglass, is that what it's called? Yeah, it's Isinglass, I S I N G L A S S. And from what I understand, it is a part of the filtration process, not a byproduct. I don't know why, on a say mechanistic level, I'm not aware of why they choose to use that animal product for that filtration process. But I remember years ago, I don't know if it's changed since then, but years ago when I was first choosing a vegan lifestyle, you know, in the 90s, I remember going out and someone was like, oh, you want to go out for a Guinness? And at that time, again, I'm not sure if their processing has changed, but at that time I couldn't. It has changed. Yeah, I couldn't and wouldn't do a Guinness because I knew at that time they were using ice and glass to you know, filter the Guinness. Right. I'm going to double check this so that we can be accurate in the show notes. But I'm almost 100% sure that Guinness is now vegan, which is great. But I bring this up because I started drinking wine a little bit more often. and I <laughs> Quarantine wine? Yeah. I think it, it's a quarantine <laughs> thing. I yeah. mean, to be honest, I don't really recall. I think it just natural. And plus, like I've been a lot more lenient. I used to be for a year or so pretty strict about eating low carb. And then over time, I think after my book came out at the beginning of the year, I was like, all right, I'm going to just like indulge a little bit more in higher carb food because I'm not against carbs at all. And I think that there are benefits to a low carb diet, to a high carb diet. And also for me, having struggled with disordered eating, it's really important for me not to be too strict about the way I eat and tune into my body more. So it's an ongoing thing. Anyways, I wasn't drinking alcohol very often because of the keto diet, although things like vodka are our keto. But I also have never been like a huge alcohol drinker. And I think it was a combination of the stress of quarantine, but also just kind of like having some wine around that I was gifted or something. And then it just kind of got me on a pattern of enjoying it more often. So maybe once a month or so, I'll buy some wine. And I have been using the wonderful website called Barnivore, which I'll link to in the show notes, which helps you quickly determine whether or not the alcohol you're drinking is vegan. And it has been so eye-opening, especially because, as I mentioned, I don't previous to now, I hadn't bought that much alcohol over my lifetime. And I knew there was a few brands. I'll shout out Bonterra, which I really love. They have organic wine that's also vegan. And there's a few other brands. There's Frey Vineyards. There's Our Daily Red, I think is what it's called. Does John Sally's wine company still exist? What was that? Vegan Vine? Is that still around? I don't know. I'm going to look that up. I think John has transitioned from you know, the last conversation I had with him, which I think was two Expo Wests ago, that he's really focused on the cannabis business. And then John actually just opened a vegan restaurant here in Southern California. Right. Which I would love to go try out. Yeah. So John is still in the vegan biz, but he's a 
co-owner of a restaurant and yeah, he's very focused on his philosophy around cannabis and CBD and marijuana is from a medicinal side of things. So I don't know if he's doing the wine anymore. Well, I am looking it up. It's a little hard to tell. I haven't seen it around. The vegan vine was very visible, but now you go to their website, it doesn't seem to be operating as well, but who knows? It's so hard to tell, you know? And I think that, yeah, they haven't even posted anything on their Twitter accounts in 2016, which is kind of sad because that was a really cool company. Anyways, you can use a website like Barnivore to look up your wines. I just actually looked up Bonterra to double check and their white wines, which is what I prefer, are suitable for vegan, but their red wines are fined with organic egg whites. That's another thing that can end up in your <laughs> alcohol. And a lot of people don't know this. So some brands will actually label their wines as vegan, but most don't. And I was at the grocery store the other day using the Barnivore website, and I was so annoyed because 90% of the wines that I typed in were not vegan. It was like one after another, and it's kind of a slow process. I think they might have an, a mobile app, which maybe I should download, but I was using their website on my phone, and it was like taking forever, and I was just like, everything I typed in was not vegan, and it just kind of... It felt really interesting because there was a moment where I thought like, this is so annoying and frustrating. I kind of just want to buy something and just not even think about whether it's vegan or not. And I think this happens with a lot of things. There are certainly very strict vegans who would never make that decision. And I do my best not to do that. But I'll also be honest, like, you know, you go to a party or something and somebody's serving wine. It's like, what are you going to do? Pull out your app and type it in right in front of them and then turn them down? Like Those can be really uncomfortable situations. And again, some people are very comfortable doing those things and some people aren't. So a lot of times I just find myself saying no to things because of the discomfort, if that makes sense. And so I guess it's just part of a bigger conversation around how complex the food industry and beverage industry is in general, is there's just so many things that go on that we're ignorant about. And you can go down this rabbit hole and learn so much, but it can be really exhausting. And the other side of it too is the financial end. Part of my frustration is because I don't drink wine that much, sometimes I just want to go like get a cheap wine. I don't want to spend a ton of money on wine because I'm not passionate about it, you know? And so inexpensive wine I looked up at this one particular store the other day wasn't vegan. And I was also annoyed. I'm like, gosh, like I have to pay all this extra money to get a vegan wine. Like that's so annoying. <laughs> I did end up going with Bonterra and I justified it. it was like a few dollars more expensive than I wanted to spend. But the great news about Bonterra is not only is their white wine vegan, but it's also organic. And so I thought, you know what? At least like I feel like my money is like really going a long way <laughs> with that. It's tough, right? Because on the financial side, I feel like a lot of people are being super conscientious about their spending right now for a variety of reasons with the instability and uncertainty of the stock market and unemployment benefits. And I mean, the upcoming election, I really feel like people's mindfulness and anxiety and attention to their finances, at least I can speak for myself and people close to me, you know, there's just a different kind of mindset on how we want to spend. But beyond that, Whitney, you know, we always have to think about, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, voting with our dollars. To me, it's not just about voting in an election cycle or 
you know, trying to shift public policy, there's a supply and demand situation with capitalism where if we support organic products, conscientiously made products, fair trade products, living wages, vegan products, plant-based, whatever is in alignment with our personal ethics, that energy that is embodied in the money in the financial system, which is just an exchange of energy really at the core, we're allowing those brands to continue to grow. And there's actually one brand that went under a few years ago. Maybe 2016 is the last time I saw it around. My favorite wine brand went out of business. It was a brand called Organic Vintners. They were based out of Boulder, Colorado. They had vineyards in Mendocino. And to this day, one of my top wines of all time that I still reminisce about, they had a Mendocino Pinot. It was organic grapes, fully certified vegan, delicious. It was so rich and buttery and deep and low acidity. And it just, I felt really good when I drank this wine, all of their varietals, but in particular, their Pinot was just sublime. It was spectacular. They went out of business and I have no idea why, but if you think about how we are helping companies to grow by giving us the energy of our finances and our dollars, companies that are dedicated to organic or even beyond that biodynamic farming. There's one brand I think is it's called Red Barn. Don't they make like pasta sauce? Yes. Yellow Barn. Yes, it's Yellow Barn, right. It's so good. Their pasta sauce is ridiculously delicious. It's fully organic. Beyond that, it's biodynamic and it's plant-based. And for a small jar of pasta sauce, it is on the pricier side. You know, you don't get as much product. You don't get as high of a volume of sauce when you buy this pasta sauce. But when you taste it, you're like, holy shit, this is amazing. But you're also knowing that, hey, I'm supporting a company that supports organic farming, biodynamic farming. They're regenerating the soil. They're being kind to the earth. So I'm going to pay more for that brand when it's available because I know where my money's going. For sure. But I think maybe it's tempting to turn a blind eye because of things like money or access to it. And I think during a time like this, as you mentioned, Jason, where life feels stressful, we might feel um, a desire to turn a blind eye simply because it's it feels like too much work and we just want to prioritize our self-care. And I think this is part of right. mental health in general is like, this is too overwhelming for me right now. I can't handle it. But the problem is, I think there's a slippery slope there. I do encourage people to take the best care of themselves and prioritize themselves in their mental state. But how often do you do that? And at what cost is the big question, you know? And I mean, talking about alcohol too, certainly it can be a slippery slope because for me, I don't have addictive tendencies when it comes to your common addictions. I think there are certain things I quote feel addicted to, but I would never like call myself an addict. I haven't had that experience. It's not in my family. And so for me, I can have a very balanced relationship with alcohol, for instance. Like I can take or leave it. Right now I'm in a phase where I just am enjoying it more often. It's pleasurable. I also really love beverages in general. So I love the experience of drinking something delicious and noticing the subtleties in it. And that's fun about wine, just like I like with coffee and tea and kombuchas and sparkling waters and all these other things that I enjoy. But some people, they abstain entirely from alcohol for very specific reasons. You know, either they just don't like it. So it's not something that they even have any desire for. Some people are 
addicted to it or prone to addiction. And so they can't have it because it is something that they'll get out of control with. And so there's so many different reasons that somebody makes a decision with alcohol. And then there are people who consume a lot of alcohol without even being aware of how it's affecting them and how they might be using it to self-soothe. And I think items like alcohol can be really tricky because A, as I mentioned, there's so many different relationships we can have with it. So people make decisions about it for so many personal reasons. But B, there isn't always a ton of awareness. And we live in a society that really is accepting of alcohol for the most part. Like it's acceptable to like go to somebody's house and have a glass of wine or have a beer together or go to a bar and socializing often involves alcohol. And I mean, I've had conversations with people during quarantine that it just seems like they're always drinking and they're getting drunk. And it's like such a common thing to be doing. And since it's socially acceptable, they might not even be aware of how much they're doing it as a way to numb out themselves. And I think that slippery slope comes in here. You know what I mean? It's like being really conscious about why you're making that decision. And is it for the best reasons? And how this kind of ties into the whole conversation is you could easily say, you know what? I know this wine isn't vegan or I don't even know if it's vegan or not. Like I'm not even going to bother to check. I'm just going to buy it. And then you kind of justify it in that moment as it's a one-time thing. (laughs) But you can also find yourself getting into that quote one-time decision-making for many more times. And you continuously say that it's a temporary decision. But after a while, if you're not paying attention, a temporary decision can turn into a long-term decision, if that makes sense. And I think that can happen when you're purchasing anything, food, for example, is, is because all of these items can be very addictive. And as human beings, we're not always very good about reining our addictions, right? So if you're not conscious about it the first time, like it's kind of okay, maybe the first time we give someone a break, but like if you're not conscious about it the second time or the third time, when are you going to prioritize being conscious and aware about your purchasing decisions? Before I move on, Whitney, I want to jump back because I feel like you kind of casually mentioned at the beginning of that chunk you're like, yeah, I have some things that I have some addictions toward. You don't think they're full-blown addictions, but maybe some addictive tendencies. Like, What are those things that you identify in your life? Well, I've been really trying to examine my relationship with coffee, for example. you know, I really like coffee right now, and that's also relatively new for me, I think. I don't remember exactly when I got into coffee, but it feels like it's only been a couple years. Because I remember growing up not being into it at all, and people around me just were so into coffee. I didn't get it. And so, gosh, in this moment, I'm like, when did that start? Was there an inciting incident? to really reflect on that. I kind of feel like, and I may be off on this timing, but I'm pretty good in terms of timelines. (laughs) That I remember when I first got into bulletproof coffee, not with the butter and stuff like that, but but bulletproof as buying it is when I was finishing Eternity, my book. And there were long, long nights editing and working on that book. And I remember that was right about 2015, 2016, I think right, I don't know, my memory serves Mm. me, I think right around maybe 2016, 2017 is when I remember you really getting interested in it because we would go to the trade shows and the conferences 
and you would start getting stoked about trying new <laughs> coffees. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just trying to think like, was there one moment? Was there one coffee that I had that I really enjoyed? And I think you might be right. I think it was around that timeline because I remember going to coffee shops more often. And I really love the experience of going to coffee shops. Although right now, it's hard for me to justify the cost involved with going to coffee shops because I've learned a lot of techniques for creating my own coffee at home. And I have a number of them now. So I've, I kind of rotate through different ways of making my own coffee, but it certainly is a lot less expensive. But even coffee at home is kind of expensive. I mean, especially if you're buying organic and fair trade coffee. And then for me, I also always drink coffee with a plant-based milk. And so the two combined can get kind of pricey. Although, listen, it's probably like a dollar to a dollar fifty a cup when I make a really good cup of organic vegan coffee. That's like not that much money, but most days I drink a minimum of two cups, maximum three. So it's either two or three cups a day. So I'm spending on average three to four fifty a day. And that adds up over time. And I mean, I'm factoring in the cost of the coffee plus the milk that I'm using plus the sweetener and I haven't done the exact math, but that's my approximation on the higher end of things. And it can add up. But think about it. If you go to a coffee shop for a really good organic vegan yep. coffee, that's probably five plus dollars, maybe more, depending on where you go. Minimum five dollars. Yeah. Legit, right? Yeah. So coffee is interesting, um, not just from the financial standpoint, but there's a lot of conflicting data about coffee out there. And I've read a lot. I try to pay a lot of attention to it. I try to notice my body. As we've mentioned in other episodes, I'm not somebody who seems to have an extreme reaction to caffeine. And I've tested that too. About a year ago, I did a full week without coffee or caffeine. And I really didn't notice a difference at all. I don't know if that was enough time. But I also do my cutoff time. So I will start drinking coffee. I try to like have a, a big glass of water, but I'm so excited. And this is where like, I'm trying to notice the addictive tendencies. It's like in the morning when I wake up, one of the first like thoughts in my head is, ooh, I can't wait to go have coffee. And is that an addiction, right? Because, or is it just a habit? And then I think, well, this brings me a lot of joy and I don't think it's harming my body. I don't think it's harming anybody else. So what's the problem? And then I try to pace myself throughout the day and I have a cutoff point which is usually between 3 to 5 p.m. where I won't have any more coffee. And that way I allow it to get out of my system as much as possible so I can get restful sleep. So that's what I mean about having the conscious awareness about what coffee I'm buying, how much money I'm spending on it, when do I have it, noticing my thoughts and feelings, how I feel emotionally and physically around it. And that feels like a balanced relationship, but I still have moments where I question it. And I think you could say the same thing about alcohol, right? It's like you can be very conscious about the alcohol you're purchasing and where it comes from. And part of this episode is trying to encourage people to be more mindful. So if you can buy organic and vegan or biodynamic wine, go for it. You know, look for sales that are happening. That's helpful. And then I also will use that as a reason to prevent me from buying alcohol too, right? Is that if I can't in that moment justify the expense or find this certain type of wine, then I just won't buy it at all. And that makes me not get out of control with it. 
right? I'm grateful that those wines are a little bit more expensive because it makes me hesitate a little before buying it. And if it was super cheap, maybe I would drink a lot more often. I don't know. But I think that there's a lot of conflicting studies about alcohol and its effect on our bodies too. And I really encourage you, the listener, to do that research for yourself because you'll go down that rabbit hole and you'll find a lot of different information about alcohol. And you also have to look at the sources. I mean, coming back to the beginning of this conversation with this information about coconuts in Thailand, like we got to be transparent. That was a press release for Edward and Sons, right? So it's in their interest to convince you not to buy from other brands and to question your purchases from other brands. Just like if you read something about coffee, is it in the interest of somebody else? Or is this like a scientific study that you're reading? And then who's backing that study, right? Like this is part of where it gets really complex when it comes to making any purchase decision. This goes beyond the food industry and the beverage industry. There's so many decisions that we can make and it's very complex. The thing that I ruminate on is how, well, there's three thoughts. One, how there are legal drugs and legal ways to alter your state of reality. And then there are illegal ways. And this is something I think about a lot because a lot of the plant medicines that I've found very beneficial on my journey of mental health and and spiritual expansion, just coming into myself more and healing a lot of trauma and dealing with a lot of wounds, those substances are technically illegal with, by the DEA here in this country. Things like ayahuasca, psilocybin, ketamine, iboga. You know, there's so many plant medicines that are in many other cultures used to heal trauma, expand consciousness, do a lot of different healing beyond just the physical. And here, the DEA has put those into a class of drugs that are illegal, but things like tobacco and alcohol, now in many states, cannabis, things like that, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's fine. Those are legal. You know, I personally feel like in my political viewpoint, everything should be legalized because there seems to be sort of this mentality of confusion of, yeah, well, we can profit on tobacco and alcohol, right? There's a lot of money to be made in those industries, but these other things, yeah, we can't really profit from them. And also they might start waking people up and we don't want that. I mean, again, not getting into conspiracy, but I do believe that there's a reason why a lot of these trauma healing, health promoting, consciousness expanding substances are illegal. There are reasons for it. And I don't think profit is the only one. I think they, if you will, whoever the they is, like don't want people waking up. That's just like a kind of a side diatribe. The other thing too, Whitney, is in terms of alcohol, do you know what the origin of the word alcohol is or sort of the historical relevance of alcohol? Have you looked into that at all? No, but I imagine you have. Okay. So this is super interesting. So the word alcohol is a derivative of, I believe it's a Middle Eastern word. I'm not sure if it's Persian exactly, but back in the Middle East, they called it al-kul, A-L-K-U-H-L, I believe, al-kul. And the reason you hear as a euphemism the word spirits, right? If you see like wine and spirits, they believed that drinking alcohol was inviting malevolent or demonic spirits into your field. Like when they would see people drink alcohol and kind of go crazy and get in fights or kill themselves or, you know, I mean, let's just be honest. Humanity has a long history of doing really stupid shit while they're drunk. Like that's a pretty common thing, right? And their philosophy was that, 
I suppose for lack of a better terminology, your energetic field would be opened to allow not so nice entities, non-physical entities to enter your chamber. Like basically in their philosophy, al cool was a demonic spirit that entered your body when you drank alcohol. And that's the origin of the word alcohol. I had no idea. It's interesting though, right? Because you know, you think about it on a level of why something like alcohol was created in the first place. Because unless we're talking about something, say, like wine, which there's been, as you said, Whitney, a lot of conflicting studies with everything. But in terms of wine, a lot of health experts look to studies, say, like the Blue Zones. We've referenced that here on the show, Dan Butner's groundbreaking work, which influenced a lot of my philosophy in terms of my book, Eternity, and the work I've done on longevity that, hey, some of these centenarians, the people living healthfully to 100 and beyond, some of them, like on the island of Sardinia, you know, they have wine in their diet. You know, these people are living healthfully to 100 and beyond that. So, okay, cool. One glass a day. Well, why is wine healthy? Well, it has an antioxidant called resveratrol, which is really good for your cardiac health and helps to scavenge free radicals. So, hey, you know, one glass, maybe two, good because you're getting the resveratrol. But in terms of like liquor, right? Or beer, for instance. I'm not really aware of any actual health benefits to drinking, say, a hard liquor or a beer. And so it, it comes to my mind of like, what were people thinking at the origin of discovering alcoholic beverages? Did they just want to get fucked up, for lack of a better word? Did they just want to alter their state of consciousness? Was it an accident? You know, did someone leave out a bunch of grapes and then it accidentally fermented and then they drank the grape juice and they're like, holy shit, I feel amazing. I often think about the origin of certain things in our human society and how they started. But it is interesting that, you know, for the most part, alcoholic beverages, the majority of them don't actually have health benefits to them. You know, it's just for changing your state, changing your mood, and that's about it. You know, so it's interesting how humanity for eons has consumed products that intentionally alter our state of consciousness. It fascinates me that we want to do that. Oh, for sure. And it also is interesting how prevalent these things are. And for instance, today I'm going to like a tiny group gathering outside. It's like a social distance thing. And like the whole, the whole like gathering is about like wine and cheese. <laughs> and so it's just like, that's such a common thing. And I actually have like anxiety about going because I don't know some of the people that are going to be there. And as an introvert and just somebody, Maybe it's just not an introvert thing, but it's common for introverts to really not look forward to these type of experiences. <laughs> but then the wine and the cheese element of it has certainly made it more complex because I just bought a bottle of wine yesterday and I had a glass or so of it. And I'm like, I don't want to go buy another bottle of wine just for this party because they actually said, like, don't bring anything, right? But in my head, I'm thinking, well, their wine probably isn't going to be vegan. And I don't want to be that person checking the Barnivore app, this gathering. So, I mean, I guess I could probably subtly, as I'm talking through it, I'm like, well, maybe I could. But like, let's just assume that none of the wine is going to be vegan. There's probably going to be like one or two bottles, right? So then I have to say no to it. And then I thought, should I just bring my bottle? But I've already opened it. And that's weird to like bring your own... <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But it started to give me anxiety thinking about this because I felt like, all right, well, 
I could go in and just like not even look up if the wine was vegan and just be ignorant bliss. But after this conversation, I'm like, gosh, that just does not sound in line with my ethics. Like I just don't feel right knowing that there could be egg whites or ice and glass or whatever. Like who knows? Like all these different random shit that ends up in wine that's not vegan. That doesn't feel in alignment with me. And I also don't feel like going and buying another bottle of wine when I just got some. And I I don't really need to drink that much anyways. But my point is, is that it's a huge part of socializing. And then I thought, well, it certainly would help me feel more relaxed around interacting with new people. And I think that's a huge reason that people drink and why alcohol is a big part of socializing is because it lowers your inhibitions and then you're feeling so much more comfortable or confident in being with people that you might kind of feel uncomfortable or awkward or anxious with normally without alcohol. And I think that's a huge part of this too. And then you add in the cheese part of it. And I'm thinking, gosh, do I need to go like bring my own cheese? But I often feel uncomfortable if I'm the only vegan at a gathering. It's like I'm the one bringing the vegan cheese to the party which I certainly don't feel embarrassed about, but it's, it is like still an element of feeling like you're singling yourself out in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. In a non-vegan environment, like, yeah, it depends how invested I am. Like if I really care, cool, I'm totally fine bringing, but honestly, like I'm not going to this gathering to eat or drink. I'm going to meet some new people and yeah, the food and the drinks are like kind of afterthoughts. And there's also the side of me that's like, gosh, that societal pressure of like drinking when somebody offers you a glass of wine, like what if they pour it in front of you and hand it to you? Like then you're that asshole that's like, sorry, it's not vegan. Like, and then do I have to make up a story about why I'm not drinking it? And then I thought, I mean, this is the rabbit hole that I go through in my head sometimes, by the way. So if anybody can relate There's either two reactions to this. It's like, A, you're overthinking it, or B, I can totally relate to this because (laughs) because I'm a planner. I feel comfortable when I can plan a situation and anticipate it. And I think also that is a common introverted thing is when you're making decisions about socializing, especially these days during quarantine, you do need to plan ahead. You need to think about like who you're going to be with what the situation is, what are your boundaries, how are you protecting your health? Like there's a lot of factors that go into that. But when it comes to being on a specific way of eating, like the vegan plant-based diet, you also need to anticipate, are you bringing your own food? Are you going to be hungry? Are you going to turn down things? Are you, you know, are you going to snack? Will there be carrots there? And then I thought I could alert these people that I'm vegan ahead of time. But like, I also have a lot of dietary preferences. So like, what if they buy me vegan crackers that aren't (laughs) gluten-free and then I'm stuck being the asshole that's like, sorry, I don't (laughs) eat those either. You know what I mean? These situations are actually very complex for me. Yeah. And it's a long-winded scenario to share how the alcohol, I think, can help with a lot of these like anxious tendencies. Like if I can just get to this event and drink as soon as I get there I'll be able to numb myself and I will feel more relaxed and I won't worry about all these little things. I think a lot of people use alcohol for that reason. It's like their safety net. I mean, I have friends that verbalize this very much. So like as long as I can have alcohol as soon as I get there, I'm good. And 
I'm not one of those people. Like I don't go directly for the alcohol, but I guess I can see why that's so tempting and such a like crutch that people use. Or who knows what else? Maybe they have some form of drug before they go to a party so that they feel more relaxed. And I think that's just a huge part of our socializing, which kind of makes me sad in a way. You know what I mean? Like we have to do something to try to make ourselves feel more comfortable around each other. Like that's how we get through these situations. Yeah, it comes down to me to really the intention of why we're using these substances. Because I have found that my experience really consistently mirrors my intention and my state of being before I consume it, like over and over, whether it's, again, alcohol, cannabis, psychedelic drugs, entheogens, whatever it is that, as an example, right, I have taken psilocybin mushrooms in a variety of different circumstances and situations and with different intents. And I know we're talking about alcohol, but as an example, I feel like this fits in a more acute way too when it comes to entheogens and, and psychedelics that if I'm doing it, say, as a very real example at Burning Man, like as a party drug, like I'm going to take psychedelic, you know, psilocybin mushrooms as a party drug, really kind of horrific, awful experience, like really hardcore, a lot of painful shit came up, like really... <laughs> It was almost as if, you know, the the energy or the consciousness, I believe, of the mushroom was like, yeah, don't do this as a party drug, okay? But doing it, say, going into nature or the woods, or there's a cabin that I rent sometimes, the mountains outside of LA, and go up there and do some journeying and spend some time to myself. My experience of a substance with an intention to, say, heal or expand my awareness or deal with trauma, the experience is very different then I want to escape. I want to numb myself. I don't want to deal with the pain. I don't want to go to a party and feel uncomfortable around other people. For me, my life experience with is that if I'm using substances to alter my consciousness to escape or avoid or subvert or try and escape pain, it's a very different experience as opposed to I'm going to use this for expansion, healing, trauma release, consciousness, like genuinely enjoy myself. I find that that energy and that the intention I'm putting of the why behind consuming it, it changes my experience dramatically. Absolutely. And I think that's why being very aware about your decisions in general. And one thing that helps is to just gain that clarity about why are you buying something? How does it help your life? Like you're talking about how a lot of alcohol doesn't have any health benefits. Well, Maybe you're not buying it for health benefits. Maybe you're buying it because you like the taste of it or because you like the experience of it. Like there's so many different reasons. And I also feel like taking the shame out of it is really important too. Like for me, another example is when I went and tried the KFC Beyond Meat offering. Yeah. And it's like, I definitely felt a little weird. I felt conflicted about it because doesn't fit in my ethics to support a company like KFC, right? To pay money to this brand. Not entirely, but it's a partnership with Beyond Meat, who for the most part, I do support Beyond Meat. I've mentioned before, I own a share of Beyond Meat stock and I really enjoy their products for the most part. So I'm happy to purchase them. So for me, it was like more about Beyond Meat than it was about KFC. And it was also like, I want to experience this. Is it fully within my values? No, but it was enough within my values and enough within my interest to make that decision. And I think 
going back to something I said earlier, it can just be so exhausting to try to weigh out the pros and cons of everything. Like sometimes it feels good to just do something and like follow your your gut desire around it. And this also comes back to my relationship with food right now, having done the the vegan keto diet for an extended amount of time and, and writing a book about that. I got to a point where I thought I kind of missed eating certain foods, you know, like I'm, it got frustrating at times to eat fully vegan keto. Like there were some things I just felt like I was missing out on. And it actually felt better for me on an emotional level to make the decision to have certain foods that weren't vegan keto. And I think that's a huge part of our experience as human beings. It's not always about trying to do the right thing and the perfect thing and everything being in a full alignment because that can cause a lot of tension and stress too. And that feeling of like sadness, like when I think about like missing out on something or restricting myself, like that brings up for me a feeling of like sadness. Sure, there's a sense of accomplishment that can come with those things, but it also reminds me of fitness. For the last three weeks or so, maybe four weeks, I had been on this really regimented fitness schedule and regimented schedule in general where I would plan out my days and I had everything in there and it was like all about how much can I accomplish and adding in all of the things into my schedule, my routine that got me closer to goals or helped me feel really good at the end of the day. And those things are wonderful, but I also have days where I want to break that rhythm Like today, I don't know if I'm going to work out. I went for a walk to the farmer's market and like that kind of (laughs) counts, but it's different from like me turning on a fitness class, which a few weeks ago I made the decision to do every single day. And then I got to a point where I thought, why am I doing this every single day? Like, do I really need to? Or is that stress physically and mentally of doing something every single day, even in those days where I don't feel like doing it? That is where it can get really tricky, right? With any of our decisions is like, what happens when your gut feeling is not to do something or like not even your gut necessarily, but sometimes you just don't want to do something. You come at that crossroads where you have to make the decision to do it anyways versus like allow yourself to just not do it. It's complicated, right? Because there's no such thing that I've been able to observe as absolutism and perfection in this reality. I think that absolutism and perfection is kind of like a mind virus that I've seen not just in the vegan community. I mean, I've seen it in you know paleo, keto, certainly growing up in the Roman Catholic religion. I think that zealousness, no matter where that zealotry is directed, whether it's an eating style, a lifestyle, an ethical viewpoint, a religious standpoint, that there's an idea in people's minds. And, and we see this all the time by virtue of the fact that we both live a vegan lifestyle and we've been in health and wellness for 15 years, is that kind of amplified by the cancel culture is if people see a chink in the armor or you doing something imperfectly or it doesn't fit with their absolutist viewpoint of the ethical system that you've claimed you align to, they're like, you're a horrible person, we're going to cancel you, you're a disgrace, you've betrayed us. I mean, there's a million examples of this. But going down the specific rabbit hole, say, of, of wanting to live as ethical of a lifestyle as possible, wherein I want to do the least amount of harm, right? Like taking the vegan word out of it for a second, I just, with my purchasing decisions or the way that I live, 
I want to do the least amount of harm, even if it's going to sometimes inconvenience me. An example of this, right, could say that if I'm going to buy a vehicle or buy a bicycle, I don't want there to be any leather because obviously leather is a byproduct of the factory farm industry. There's a massive amount of cruelty and violence, not just toward animals, but toward people that work at slaughterhouses and factory farms, and also the massive amount of toxicity that's generated in the leather industry with all of the ways that they tan the hides and cure the hides and all the chemicals that these workers are breathing in. So I'm going down a tangent here, but I'm going to end up in a good place, I promise. It's looking at the amount of cruelty toward animals and humans in that product life cycle of leather and going, I don't want to support that. So say I go and I make an effort to research what vehicles are out there that don't have any kind of leather in them because I don't want to support that cruelty. Well, you get down to the level of, okay, cool. There's not a lot of animal products in the seats. There's no leather here. But the great majority of tire companies, I remember researching this years ago, there's only a very few of them, and I'm not even sure where their processes are now, use animal fat and animal byproducts to galvanize the rubber for the tires in your car, the tires on your bicycle, the tires on your motorcycle. So even if you go through all of these levels of research to think about how I can be a more ethical consumer, there's generally, in many cases, not all, some compromise along the way. Like, cool, there's no leather, there's no animal products, blah, blah, blah. I'm driving an electric car, uh, but the tires. So there's animal products in the tires that are a byproduct of factory farm. My point in all this, and there's many more examples I can bring up, is kind of an offshoot of this research segment that is somehow tied in, Whitney, to this absolutist, perfectionist mentality that people are willing to use as a, as a sword to cut other people down. You're not a good enough vegan. You're not a good enough Christian. You're not a good enough Muslim. You're not a good enough paleo. Whatever the fuck it is, there are so many people that are, th- are throwing stones in glass houses that are making similar decisions, right? It's like, okay, do you own a car? Do you own a, bu- a bicycle? Do you have rubber pro- Like, There's nobody on this planet who's a perfect Christian, a perfect Muslim, a perfect vegan, a perfect anything. It doesn't exist. Because unfortunately, the nature of this reality, as we have it set up right now in modern human society, is there are ethical compromises that have to be made no matter what we do. Like, that's just what I found. And it sucks, right? Because you want to do the least amount of harm possible. But the further you go down the research rabbit hole, at a certain point, you're like, fuck it, I'm just going to do the best I can. And that's where I'm at right now is I'm going to, in the moment, I'm just going to do the best I can with the awareness that I have. Absolutely. I mean, but let's be honest, sometimes we don't feel like doing the best that we can. What do you mean? Well, let's just say at this, like this example that's coming up later in my day of going to this gathering, I'm already thinking like, what if in that moment somebody hands me a glass of wine and I do decide to take it even though I don't know if it's vegan or not? Like, what if the bottle isn't available? What if it's inside? Like, what am I going to do? Ask them to go bring the bottle out so I can scan it and see if it's on Barnivore and then hand them back the glass if it's not. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So my best would be doing that, right? Like my best would say, I'm going to go and check off all these boxes to make my decision. That technically would be my best. And my best would be turning it down. But I'm saying, what if I, or I don't think I'm going to do this, but I'm also not in that situation in this moment as we're talking about it. It could absolutely change. And no one's going to know, aside from those people at the gathering, right? Like, unless I post about it on social media, hey guys, just so you know, I'm having this glass of wine. Like, it's something I could easily do without anybody knowing. I would know. But I'm saying there's so many decisions like that 
where we may not be doing the best that we can, but we do it anyways. Maybe we do it because we can hide it. Maybe we can pretend it didn't happen. Maybe, you know, it's easier to brush it under the rug. And I would be curious how many vegans, or as you said, all these lists of categories you can put yourself into, how many people do those things. And because nobody's going to know what they did, they never have to admit it publicly. I think this is an interesting thing because it comes down to the weight that we give around our perception of self and basically how do we perceive ourselves versus how other people perceive us. Because as an example, if you were to go and consume something that's not vegan and no one publicly knows about it, my question is, at the end of the day, how are you going to feel about yourself? Because to me, that's really what it comes down to is independent of the opinions of others, you know, what is ultimately your relationship with self? You know, what do you feel in your heart and mind about the decisions you're making in your life? Because, you know, we can go back to, again, many, many examples of people who say align with a specific doctrine, but then do the opposite of what they say they're going to do. And again, this wraps into forgiveness and compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, because no one is making perfectly aligned decisions all the time. You know, there are people who, and this is up to a lot of interpretation if we bring in religious connotations and spirituality, but Jesus Christ as a religious figure teaching compassion and tolerance and forgiveness and unconditional love. And I'm going to say this, you know, growing up Catholic, there's a whole lot of people in the Roman Catholic religion who aren't practicing compassion and tolerance and unconditional love and forgiveness. There's people who ascribe to that philosophy and are filled with a lot of hate, deep hatred. And that's a random example, but I guess my point here, Whitney, is when we're alone with ourselves and we're not posting things on social media and we're not under public scrutiny, we're not even, say, with our partners or significant others, we ultimately can't run away from ourselves, right? And so it's almost like I try and think about sometimes the awareness that I have when I'm making decisions of how am I going to feel about reflecting on this decision later? Am I going to feel good about myself? Am I going to use this decision as a way to be punitive and beat myself up? My framework is not so much on how other people are going to perceive me as much as it is, how am I going to perceive myself? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I guess this is where sometimes I think about like a grander scheme, like a bird's eye view of life, for instance, is we can get so caught up in the present and the short term versus the long term. And I think it's really important for us when we're examining our decisions, it's like, well, what is the long-term effect of this too? Like, for example, for me, if I decide if I'm going to work out or not, it's like, well, does skipping a day affect my ability to be consistent and stick with my workout schedule? Not usually. I can skip a day, allow myself a rest day, as many people do with fitness anyways, and still get back on track tomorrow. And does missing a day affect my body greatly? I don't think so. In most cases, no. Certainly, if you work out every day for a long period of time, you probably would get really great effects. But are those really necessary and important to me? And the same thing goes with all your purchasing decisions. I mean, if you're deciding to buy a certain product, like, Maybe there's a minimal long-term impact on you, but there might be a really great impact on others. And I think that's where this comes down to as well, is it really depends on the certain specific scenario that you're in. 
like for this hypothetical scenario where I'm offered a glass of wine and I don't know if it's vegan or not, right? Like, well, is the wine already opened and is it going to be tossed out if I don't drink it? Or is somebody else going to drink? Like, is that wine going to exist regardless if I have it or not? I mean, that's a very different thing. Or how important is it for me to keep my body fully vegan and pure and all of that stuff, right? Like all those little choices. Or does it have a ripple effect? Like if I say yes to this glass of wine, does that encourage me to say yes and make exceptions on a more regular basis? And that can happen with us as human beings too. And coming back to the original discussion about the coconut products, like, I mean, it's actually really hard. I tried looking up what brands get their coconuts from these farmers that are using monkeys. And I could only find two and I've never even heard of these brands. <laughs> There's like petitions going around and actually in the past month or so, there has been some changes happening about the coconut farmers and brands choosing to not have some of these brands that are getting their coconuts I don't even remember the names off the top of my head, but there are stores that are refusing to carry those products in their stores anymore, which I think is really cool. And that seems to be a, a recent thing that happened. But for you, the consumer, it's actually really hard to find a list of companies that are using these cruel practices. And to me, that's where the frustration comes in. It's like, thank goodness for Barnivore, where I can quickly look up most wines, but they don't have every single wine on there. So there's going to be a time where I look up something and I don't know the answer. And maybe I go the extra step and I email that company or I call them to try to find out. That involves a lot of effort. So what if you go to the store after listening to this episode and you think about where you're buying your products from? Like, okay, well, we know that Edward and Sons doesn't get their coconuts. Like, does that mean you only buy Edward and Sons from now on? Because it's the only sure thing. And this is what I mean is it, it becomes a very complex thing to make these decisions. And I think that's part of the reason that a lot of people either give up or get very lenient is because the amount of mental effort it takes to make these decisions is really tough. This is a really interesting offshoot of something that I've been wrestling with, I suppose, in terms of my research, Whitney. If we go back to the financial system, I want to invest more money into an IRA and start to put more money aside for retirement, right? And if I look kind of at a foundation, a basic foundation of an IRA, whether it's a Roth or a traditional, a lot of recommendations that I've been reading from multiple, I suppose, I don't want to call them financial gurus, but whatever, you know, Warren Buffett is one example who said, you know, as a base, you know, keep it very boring, you know, have something like an index fund or an EFT fund into the S&P 500, which is, that's our major US stock market, right? There's the NASDAQ, there's the S&P 500. And his idea is that the US economy is going to subsist and persist in some form. And by having the foundation of your investment in an index fund, which invests a little bit into you know, the major companies in the US, you're going to have a good basis of return. And then you know, if you want to get a little more risky, you can try different equities and securities and bonds and things like that. My point is, if you look at the companies that are comprising the S&P 500, these index funds, many of them have business practices that I find to be radically unethical, right? But okay, if I'm going to have my money in this thing and I want as high of a return as possible, then all of these financial experts are saying, no, do the index fund in the S&P 500. It's the most stable thing. 
it's a good foundation for you to build your house of investments on. But on an ethical standpoint, I can agree with knowing that my money is going toward, say, oil companies or fracking companies or defense contractors, people building weapons that destroy other people. There's a million other examples of this that are comprised in those index funds. But then I look at the rise of, say, ethical index funds or ethical investing that has really taken hold the last, I think, five to seven years. There are a couple of index funds that I've looked at for my retirement that don't invest in companies that do child trafficking or child labor or defense contractors, weapon makers, petroleum companies, et cetera, et cetera. But their returns right, are generally not as high if you look at the long tail as something like the S&P 500. So again, it's this thing of, okay, I've got my money invested in something, but I know that my rate of return over, say, 10, 20, 30 years is likely not going to be as high. My money is not going to be compounding and working as hard for me if I choose an ethical fund over something traditional that's less ethical, right? So again, it's this conundrum of, well, I really do want to retire with a good nest egg and have some semblance of hopeful security. Again, no guarantees. But I want to be ethical. So do I put my money towards something that's more ethical but less of a return or something that's less ethical but a higher return? You know, as an offshoot of this conversation, these are, I don't know, somewhat difficult considerations that we need to make, right? Absolutely. And I'm frankly exhausted even just talking about it. So <laughs> if the listener is too, I don't blame you. And I think it, as Jason was saying, doing the best you can with what you know and what you have access to and not beating yourself up when you don't do what you feel like is the best that you can. And I, I think it really depends on your definition of that, you know, and if it feels good to think ahead about these things like I do and do your research, great. But if it doesn't, that's okay too. I mean, ultimately life is really about our personal decisions and yes, they do have a ripple effect on others. But I mean, it's really interesting because everybody's making their decisions for different reasons. And sometimes we just conflict with one another. Sometimes what we view as okay is very different than somebody else and their viewpoint of what's okay and what's ethical. And we're all trying to function together as a world. And it's really not easy. And I think sometimes that can lead to us feeling burnt out or hopeless or overwhelmed. And I think that's an important thing to examine too, I guess, as a takeaway for this is really taking the time to look at your relationship with your purchases and your decision making and your lifestyle, why you do it. Is there something that you can shift? There's always room for improvement. And then what are you going to do in these different situations? What do you do when you're presented with a, something that's challenging? And And then after the fact, it's interesting to evaluate it too. It's interesting to look on why you made those decisions and what can you do in the future if it didn't feel quite right or in alignment with you. And if you enjoy doing that research, great. If not, you can find other resources that will do the research for you and you can reach out to them. I mean, for me, not knowing what brands support these farmers in Thailand that aren't ethical I could probably just send a message to PETA and ask them, do you have a list of brands? Like start there, right? And see what they say. If they respond to me, write to them on social media. I can reach out to some of the companies that I buy from and just ask them and see if they'll be transparent about it. 
I can choose to support brands that are really transparent, like Edwards and Sons. Like knowing that actually makes me, as Whitney, on a personal level, like that makes me feel more trusting of them and want to be more supportive of them, right? I think overall, they've given me a lot of great reasons to support their work. So I'm sure when I go to the market next and decide to buy some canned coconut milk, I'll probably choose them for that reason. And in a way, that's really great marketing. (laughs) But uh, that helps you make those decisions. And so if you know that your money is going towards a brand that feels really good for you, then that is also helping them in a lot of really great ways too. Speaking of brands that we support, at the end of most of our episodes, we love to shout out brands that we love. So for me, we brought out them before, but I want to give them another shout out for transparency and that's Gaia Herbs. They are one of the brands that I've consistently felt a lot of trust for. They make wonderful supplements that are based in incredible plant medicine. Recently, they sent me their elderberry products. So I've been trying out, they have elderberry gummies that are vegan and I think all organic. I don't have them right in front of me at this moment, but they're made with really high quality ingredients. And I recently had some of their elderberry syrup. And elderberry is really wonderful for your immune system. Jason actually could probably share some facts about it off the top of his head. Yeah, elderberry in general is just a really good immune-boosting supplement. I like to take it at the first sign of maybe a little tickle in my throat or a little bit of congestion. It's one of those ingredients that Gaia, they have a liquid elderberry that you mentioned, Whitney. And yeah, As soon as I start to feel like "Eh, I'm a little bit off, I run to the store and grab a bottle and uh, tastes amazing, super effective, and one of the best things you can take other than, say, the other one that comes to mind would be like a high dose of vitamin C in someone's immune-boosting regimen. Right. And the Gaia herbs I just looked up on their website, those gummies I'm talking about, I guess, are brand new. And they have three available. They have the Extra Strength They have the everyday elderberry. Those are the ones I've been taking. I've been saving the extra strength (laughs) for when I feel like I need extra strength, which I don't recently. And they also have some formulated for kids specifically, and they are organic. They're made from their wonderful elderberries. I think they grow, not positive, but I mentioned in a previous episode that I visited their farm in North Carolina and it was magical. It was such a cool place to visit. They don't grow everything there. I think they might have like a farm in Costa Rica or something. What I do love about Gaia, and this is why I'm bringing them up in terms of transparency, is that you can actually go and learn more about where everything is grown very easily. For a while, I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head if they're still doing this, but you could scan the bottle. I'm looking on their website right now to try to see if they still have this, but you could scan the bottle and it would tell you exactly where that specific product came from and the whole story behind it. But they are just incredibly committed to high quality and sustainability. And again, for me, having gone firsthand to see what they're doing there, I became a big advocate for their work. So they felt like the perfect brand to shout out for this. Jason, for you, what is a brand that comes to mind when you think about transparency and ethics? We've mentioned them here before. The immediate company that comes to mind to me is One Degree Organics. And their commitment to not only super clean sourcing, but the transparency with their labeling and the fact that they have QR codes where you can track the story 
of the ingredients in your food. And we met Danny and Sandra years ago. I think we met them first at Expo East, and they've expanded to so many different cereals and base flours, flours that you can use for baking is what I mean by that, oats, different cereal and breakfast products. And not only do they taste incredible, I mean, really the quality of the product is there, but you look at how upfront and how open they are to the point where you can see the story and track exactly what farms the ingredients came from. And they were one of the first companies I remember doing that. They were also one of the first companies, we mentioned this again in our episode with Max Goldberg, that they had a certified glyphosate-free. Glyphosate is uh, the main ingredient in Roundup. It's one of the most toxic pesticides out there. And yeah, they were one of the first companies I remember putting that label on their products. And I thought, these guys are really in it to win it. And they are walking their talk and really trying to be as ethical and transparent as possible. So again, big shout out. We've mentioned them before, but Danny and Sandra at One Degree, their entire family, they're amazing people. We always love seeing them, but their products also reflect their personal values. And they're just wonderful. I actually want to go out and get a box of cereal now. The raisin bran is so good. <laughs> so good. Oh, cereal does sound really good for sure. All right. Well, another thing that we do at the end of our solo episodes, meaning the episodes where we don't have a guest with us, is to share some of the things that people have been searching online. And in full transparency, pun intended, because we've been talking about transparency, I didn't actually look any up in the past few days. So I don't have any like super up to date queries to bring up here, but I still have my list of the old ones. So they just don't sound seem as fresh to me, in other words. Mm, let's do an oldie but goodie then. <laughs> it's fine. But I don't know if any of these feel like some of these I just want to delete from the list because they no longer seem funny. This one was really interesting and funny because of how odd it is. I don't really know what to make of this, but somebody typed in. And again, for those of you who have, haven't listened to episodes where we've talked about this, we use Google Analytics and it shows us the things that people search that can lead them to our website. So sometimes people are led to our website through really bizarre search results. And one of them was this long phrase that somebody typed in, which was different dogs will learn things that may be very funny and sad at the same time. (laughs) Different dogs will learn different things that are both funny and sad at the same time. Would this be teaching them to do specific tricks that are somehow embarrassing or shaming for the dog, but we find amusing? I'm trying to think of what that would be. What kind of tricks would come to your mind, Whitney, that would be like degrading or demeaning to a dog. I'm trying to think of what that might be. I don't know. That's such a bizarre, and that is one of the more bizarre queries we've had. (laughs) Because I'm trying to think of, I mean, you know, to be honest, we like to put your dog Evie through her paces. You know, we do the bang thing where she plays dead and makes her, whenever we give Evie treats, I'm sure there's a part of her that's like, oh, I got to go through this whole rigmarole to get a fucking treat. Just give me the treat. But she does it anyway. Well, I rarely, I rarely make her go through that routine, to be honest. Oh, do you? Am I going to make her do a trick every time she gets a treat? I mean, I think sitting down is is her good behavior. It feels like when she was younger, though, you did do that a lot more. At least what I you did, know. I did, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all right, Evie, do the whole routine. 
I don't know. The only thing I can think of with that query is something one would teach a dog that brings us amusement, but somehow demeans them. Do they even feel demeaned or disrespected? We're projecting our own emotional aptitudes onto a dog. They may not feel that way anyway. They can't tell us. It's not necessarily something we're training them to do. It could be like, you know, when you see your dog and you're like, oh, that's so sad. But because it's like so cute and endearing, I'm also going to laugh. You know, like sometimes we laugh about things that are sad. Hmm, Yeah. Like, that's what I'm wondering if this means, like that experience of that, how you can have those dual emotions at the same time. I'm not sure. I feel sometimes that I wish we could find the source of who actually typed in these queries so we could bring them on as guests and be like, what did you mean by that? For sure. Hey, Jim from Nantucket, we got your message about dog tricks. (laughs) What the hell were you talking about? I love that you said Nantucket. Like, where did that even come from? I don't even know. Huh. Okay. Don't even know. This one was falls into the interesting category, and I I just felt like it was something worth bringing up, which is, what does happiness feel like physically? Ooh, happiness feels like sparks and electricity shooting through the body. It feels buoyant. It feels like there's an inner radiance, almost like there's an inner sun inside of you that is radiating its warmth and its vibrance outward into the world. It reminds me of that song by the police that it's not one of their hits, but uh, it's called Invisible Sun. We'll link to that in the show notes too. But it feels like that. It feels like there's an invisible sun inside of my chest that is just radiating goodness and light and fun and joyfulness. Happiness feels alive. It feels like a level of aliveness and radiance. Yeah. How about for you, Whitney? What does happiness feel like in your body to you? I mean, I don't have quite the same poetic response as you do, Jason. You can be like, it feels good. (laughs) It's interesting because I think maybe we can use this as a thought-provoking question for the listener to think about what happiness feels like to you and paying attention to that. I mean, to me, it's like a tingly sensation a lot of times or like a buzzing feeling like a, gosh, it's really interesting to reflect on that. In this moment, as... (laughs) In this moment, I just feel tired. So I wouldn't say that I'm sad. It's interesting because I, when I checked in with myself, I'm like, I wouldn't describe how I feel in this exact moment as happy, but I wouldn't describe it as sad. I think the only thing that comes to mind right now is I'm tired and antsy. So when I'm not in that moment of feeling happiness, it's a little hard to pinpoint because I'm just trying to imagine what happiness feels like. But I also think happiness is interesting because I would say I feel happy generally. Like I probably would describe myself as feeling happy in this moment because I feel content. Well, there's a difference, I think, between contentment and happiness. I think those are two different things. For sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I think there are different levels of happiness and it feels different depending on a lot of different circumstances. So it's hard to describe it as an overarching thing. It's kind of like, isn't um in, what is the name of the, People in Alaska, Eskimos. Is that they're Alaskan, right? Eskimos are in Alaska. There are some there, yes. <laughs> I was like, I hope I didn't. Wait, where else are Eskimos? Where else do they live? Antarctica? I do not know. I actually don't know either. You know, it's interesting. I don't want to make an assumption. But, anyways, isn't it in the Eskimo language? What is the Eskimo language even called? But they have different words for snow, is my point. Isn't that true? That there's like all these different words for snow because snow is a huge part of their lives. So 
there's different ways to describe something that most of the world has one word for. Yeah, I'm looking it up and it says, are there really 50 words for snow in Inuit language? Hmm. Interesting. But you've heard that before, Jason, haven't you? It says many myths have a grain of truth. However, the latest studies show that a researcher was actually correct. So apparently there's an element of polysynthesis, they call it, in their words for snow. So yeah, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce these words, but there are many multiple words for different types of snow in Inuit language, yes. So that's part of my point is that I feel like there's different types of happiness. And so to describe it really depends on the type of happiness that you're feeling in that moment. And thus, it's hard to say off the top of your head. If I was like feeling an extreme a feeling of happiness in this moment, I could probably describe it. But because I wouldn't say happiness is at the forefront of how I feel in this exact moment, then I don't know if I can do it justice. All right. I have a philosophy on this as we wrap that I just want to comment on really quick. I feel like happiness is something that I stopped pursuing because I feel like happiness has become something that is almost like a guest, a surprise guest that I am delighted when it shows up. What my aim is now in my life, and it could change, but for now and probably the foreseeable future, for me is contentment. And that's why I said, to me, I feel there's a difference between contentment and happiness in the sense that contentment to me is a feeling of relaxed peacefulness, knowing all is well. That's to me what contentment is, is I look at my surroundings, I have an inner sense of peace, relaxation, gratitude. To me, that's contentment. Happiness is a different emotion for me that I'm not chasing it anymore. I feel like I was chasing it for a long time. And we go back as we wrap up this conversation and kind of do a callback to addiction, I feel like there was a part of me that was engaging in an addictive cycle of, I need to do all of these things and be all these things and earn these things and create these things because then I'll be happy. We talked a lot about that in our episode with Taylor Proctor, but I guess in conclusion, Whitney, like I'm aiming for contentment. And if happiness shows up, come on in and have a glass of wine, happiness. We're glad you're here. But I'm not chasing happiness anymore in my life. Fair enough. Well, I think uh, it's time that we start to wrap up. And before we do, I want to place some emphasis for you, the listener. We would love to hear from you through our survey that we have right out right now, which is specifically for those of you who listen to the podcast. So if you have not completed it yet, we would love for you to. It's really simple. It should only take a few minutes of your time. And it would give us a lot of insight into who you are, how you listen, what we can do to make this podcast even better or keep it the same as opposed to feeling a desire to change it, especially after we've crossed a 100 episode mark. Just really checking in with you to make sure that this is something that you are getting a lot of value, whether it's joy or insights or learning or all the different elements that you can get from a podcast. We're really committed to making this a wonderful experience for you. So If you could take the time to fill out the survey, you can find it at podcast.wellevator.com slash survey. Again, that's podcast.wellevator, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com slash survey. And you can also find a link to that survey on our website, wellevator.com. We have show notes for every single episode. And... Usually once a week, we mention this survey. So if you can't find this specific or, you know, you haven't easily found this episode, 
you can actually do a quick little search. There's a search bar. And if you type in survey, you'll probably find one of the episodes with the survey on it. I've also been meaning to put it somewhere more obvious on the website. So anyways, long story short (laughs) is to just go to wellevator.com and you can check out the show notes for each episode. We'll link to all the brands we mentioned like Edward and Sons, Gaia Herbs, One Degree Organics, anyone else that's come up like Bonterra we mentioned. We talked about Barnivore. Like there's all these different wonderful companies and brands that are in alignment with our ethics and perhaps yours as well. We'll link to articles that we mentioned, songs that we mentioned. Everything is on in our show notes at wellevator.com to make it easy for you to learn more, to get what you're after, to read the transcript, to share. If you want to leave a review for the podcast, it's easy to do it there. It's very simple. That's our hub. And you can also sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch. We send out weekly emails summarizing the episodes, sharing insights that are related to the episodes, freebies. We have a bunch of freebies available for you, meaning free ebooks and video series and supportive resources to help you with your journey towards going outside of your comfort zone and expanding yourself to see how you feel in the world when uh, you just try something new and how that can impact your well-being. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We will be back again for another one this coming Wednesday and Friday. So we have our episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Fridays are lovely because we have guests on the show and we just have an incredible lineup of guests coming your way. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't yet so you'll be notified or sign up for the newsletter and we'll hit you up in your inbox to keep you posted on everything that's coming out on This Might Get Uncomfortable. Until next time, we're wishing you the very best with your well-being. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.